to invite you to quiet your heart, maybe even bow your head, close your eyes, and go with me in a time of prayer to God's throne together. God, when all else fails, you are still sovereign. You are still God. Over and above a world that has clearly lost its ever-loving mind, you are still God. And so, God, I thank you today for the opportunity to gather here in your name. I thank you for the freedom we have in this country to gather in your name. And I thank you for those women and men around the world who are fighting and dying on behalf of such freedoms. I ask God today that you would move in each of our hearts to cleanse us from all the dirt, all the junk, all the scum that has accumulated inside us after another crazy week in Northern Virginia. And I pray, God, that instead you would give us a clarity of heart and a clarity of mind, a, clair a clarity of focus today, that we can study your word and move out of this place as those who have been changed by it. God, when we see problems in this world, help us not just to lament them, but to be part of the solution. I pray today, God, that you, would, that you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would not be me who speaks, but, but you, God, speaking loud and clear. I, I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm super excited that both campuses of Spirit and Life Church are now beginning a new sermon series on the Bible's New Testament gospel book of John. This new series is going to carry us into summer as we use this opportunity to intentionally go deeper into our understanding of God's Word together. So last Sunday, Pastor Matt Benton was here to start this series as he talked about John chapter 1, how God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God pitched his tent among us, Matt Benton said last week. Now, if you missed that opening series last week, you can catch up with the audio recording available at our website, spiritandlifechurch.org. And if you're listening right now to our podcast, I'll say hello to the internet. Today, my job is to take our sermon series one step further as we investigate the miracles that Jesus performs in the book of John. Now, many biblical scholars, like the fellow we saw in the video, identify seven key miracles in the book of John. Turning water into wine in John chapter 2. Jesus healing the official's son in John chapter 4. The healing at the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida in John chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Walking on the water in John chapter 6 healing a man born blind in John chapter 9, and raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, it will be important for you to hang on to that today because we're going to be studying deep in God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, we're giving them away for free out at our welcome table. Now, of course, Jesus did many more than just seven miracles. I mean, if you think about all the miraculous things that happened during Jesus' life, you would include, of course, the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth. You would talk about the, the miraculous, perfect, sin, sinless life that Jesus lived. You would talk about how Jesus miraculously fulfilled all the law and the prophets 
of the coming Messiah. You, you, would, you would think that his teaching and example are, are miraculous. You would think that his dying for the sins of the world on the cross are, is miraculous, that, that his resurrection is a miracle, and that all of his post-resurrection appearances are miraculous, and you would be right. But for this study today, we're going to focus on the seven key earthly miracles that Jesus performed during the the relatively brief three-year period between the time of his baptism and the time of his resurrection. So if if you think there are a lot more than seven miracles, you're right, and and the the book of John itself says that um, towards the end, the very last verse of the book of John says... Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And I suppose that if I were to preach to you about all the miraculous things Jesus ever did, they would kick us out because they need school here tomorrow morning. So Jesus does way more than seven miracles, and you could argue that everything Jesus did is miraculous, and you'd be right. But today we're talking about the seven specific key miracles that the author of John, John the disciple, records for us in his book during Jesus' three-year ministry. And while I wish we could go in depth on each of these miracles, the truth of the matter is we're going to barely have time just to touch on each one. So my hope today is that you would simply be inspired by this very brief introduction to the seven key miracles of the book of John so that you yourself on your own, in your own personal study and devotion time, could study the miracles in John more deeply. Or maybe even your small group wants to take seven weeks and study the seven miracles in the book of John. So, you are going to need a Bible. Scripture is also going to be projected on the screen behind me. And I think they put it in the bulletin. Yes, they did. Wow, that's tiny font. The preacher's going to talk about the Bible a lot today in church. Sorry about that. The first miracle that Jesus does in his earthly ministry shows us that he is master over matter. The changing of water into wine in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm experimenting with the English Standard Version for a change. Um, So that's what I'm reading from. You can read whatever version works for you, but today I'm reading from the ESV. All right, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I want you to notice how this miracle works. Jesus doesn't have to wave his hands. Jesus doesn't have to do some special song and dance or speak some magic words or go through some religious ceremony. In fact, reading this scripture and how this miracle works, we see clearly that Jesus doesn't really have to do anything to the water at all. But in this instance, Jesus works miraculously through other people. The servants at the banquet who have no idea at first who Jesus is and who have no idea that Jesus is using them to complete his first miracle at the time. Jesus simply tells them to fill up these big stone water jars. Think like roughly those big 55-gallon drums. Jesus tells them to fill them up with water, and, and, and they don't know why he's asking them to do this. They don't understand his purposes or what he's about to accomplish. The servants at that banquet, this is important, simply obey. And, and when they take out some of the water, they take it to the master of the banquet. And, and he, likewise, didn't know where it was coming from. He didn't see Jesus. He didn't hear his instruction. He didn't know where this wine that was once water came from. But his comments are surprising. The master of the banquet tastes this wine and realizes not only is it wine, but it was good wine. Here's what I want you to pull out of this miracle. And again, if, if we had unlimited time, we could pull unlimited insights out of this miracle, I'm sure. But what I want you to notice about this one today is this. Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary, at this point in the story, is one of the relatively few people who know Jesus is. How, how does Mary know who Jesus is? Well, you remember Christmas, right? That whole angel Gabriel, miraculous appearance, immaculate conception, virgin birth in Bethlehem's manger kind of a thing. So Mary knows who Jesus is. She knows he is the Son of God. Now, the servants don't know who he is. The servants don't know what Jesus is capable of. The servants don't know what Jesus is doing miraculously through them. But Mary does. And she asks him, knowing that he's God, a very earthly kind of question. They've run out of wine at the wedding. They're going to have to shut down the open bar. Now, of, of all the things to ask the Lord and maker of the universe... I would have to say, Mary, that seems kind of earthly. But I guess what I see here is that Jesus cares even about those silly, earthly, mundane parts of our lives. The other thing I see is that through these servants who have no clue what's happening, Jesus is working. And to the master of the banquet, who had no idea where the blessing came from, Jesus is working. And so, my friends, even when we don't see it, even when we don't know it, even when we can't understand it, maybe just maybe like those servants, Jesus is working miracles through us in ways we can't see. 
And maybe like the master of that banquet, Jesus is giving us blessings through ways he was working that we couldn't even understand. Because still today, through we ignorant but willing servants, Jesus Christ is still working miracles. The God who transformed water into wine in John chapter 2 is the God who is still capable of working miracles in our lives still today. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two, and again, we can't spend a whole lot of time on any of these. We're just touching on them, and I hope you will dig deeper on your own or with your small group. Miracle number two, we're now in John chapter 4. So flip a page if you have to to follow along. John chapter 4, Jesus healing the official's son. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. Well, that's significant. We did our first miracle there. Now we're back in Cana to do our second. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to ask him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. This man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Look at this miracle. And again, Jesus doesn't need to do some fancy song and dance routine. Jesus doesn't need to speak some magic words or wave his hands or, or any of that ceremonial stuff. The, the, the organ doesn't have to be playing the Benny Hinn music and Jesus doesn't have to slap the little boy on the head and scream, be healed. Jesus doesn't have to have a 1-800 number where you can call and make your donation in the hope of faith healing, right? In fact, what is most amazing to me here about miracle number two is that Jesus doesn't even have to be physically present where the sick boy is at all. But still Jesus knows that little boy. And still Jesus loves that little boy. And without any of the pomp and circumstance, but by the pure and simple power of his will, God in the flesh makes that boy well at the exact moment he said he would. Now here's what I want you to notice about this miracle. Look at verse 50. And tell me, the boy's father... What does the boy's father have to do on his end of the equation for his son to be well? Verse 50. 
he has to call the 1-800 number and make his donation, yes? No. He has to put his hands on the TV with the other guy's hands. He has to do that. He has to get a, a sanctified, oil-drenched prayer handkerchief in the mail. That's what he has to do. No? Verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He simply believed. Jesus didn't have to do physically anything. He didn't have to even be where the boy was. And the father of the son didn't have to do any kind of religious song and dance. He simply believed. And Jesus simply willed. And by the power of the will of God and the faith of the boy's father, the child was made well. And the testimony, this is great, the testimony and the witness of the miracles of Jesus Christ were spread to that man's whole household. So now in miracle number one, the disciples believe in Jesus. And now in miracle number two, this whole household believes in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And still today, that very same God who healed the official's son can work in our lives today by the sheer power of his divine will. An official's son. God can even work in the lives of those who work for the government. Praise the Lord. All right, we can't stay long on any of these miracles. We've got to keep moving or they're going to have school here tomorrow. Miracle number three in John chapter five, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, not the one in Maryland, the one in Israel. John chapter five. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, we would say persons with disabilities, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Yeah. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. See, the belief at this time and some scriptures will put this in the footnotes, the belief at this time was that an angel was going to descend on the pool there at Bethesda and was going to stir up the water. And the first person who could enter into the pool after the water was stirred by the angel would be healed of whatever ailed them. But this poor fella had been laying there so long and, and literally could not move himself into the pool to receive this healing. And not only was he depressed because he had these disabilities, he was depressed because he didn't have the, the power, he thought, on his own to fix them. And you know, I think we have all been there. I think we have all been where that fellow was, where we, th we think everybody around us is getting all these blessings, and no matter what we do, God keeps leaving us out. Why do they always get the blessing, and I feel like I never do? I think we've all been there. 
We see God doing miracles in other people's lives, and, and we lament the fact that we don't see God at work in our own eyes. And, and there that guy was, lamenting his condition. In fact, how long does this scripture tell us he had been there lamenting his condition by the pool? How long? 38 years. Not quite four decades. This guy was... You might say denied his blessing, denied his healing. Sisters and brothers, if anybody understands what it's like to be frustrated with life's problems, in fact, if anybody understands what it's like to be frustrated with God's timing, it's this guy at the pool of Bethesda. Oh, but this had been God's plan all along. And this had been God's timing, God's kairos all along. Tell me, who were all the other people that were healed there at that pool? We don't know. But God's plan all along was to make this fellow an eternal example of God's power and God's healing, memorialized in the scriptures. If this man had been healed earlier, he wouldn't have been there that day when Jesus came by, and John wouldn't have recorded how this fellow was healed miraculously. No, it was God's plan all along. It was God's timing all along to make this fellow, who thought he was left out, the single most remembered healing ever at that pool. God's plan for that man was more than just physical healing, but to be the vessel of the power and the testimony of God's miraculous power for millennia to come. And again, I'm not, I'm not seeing a song and dance routine. I'm not seeing Jesus wave his hands. I'm not seeing Jesus slap the guy on the forehead. Jesus doesn't need a fancy ceremony. Jesus, who is God, doesn't need, even need an angel to come down and stir the water. But just like before, all Jesus has to do is bid it be done. Will it to be done. And by the sheer power of his divine will, it is. Verse 9, uh, verse 8. Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk, verse 9. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And still today, the God who has worked that miracle in his own timing is, I promise, still working his divine will in our lives, even when we feel like he must be late, even when we feel like everybody else is getting the blessing but us. Got to keep moving. Miracle number four, you have made it halfway. Praise the Lord. John chapter 6 the feeding of the 5,000. If you're playing the home game, John chapter 6, starting in verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Walmart has not been invented yet. Where are we going to get bread for all these people? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 
200 denarii, 200 days wages worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little bite. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That is 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Maybe 10,000 people? 15,000 people? Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, look at this, it's Passover, Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, breaks the bread and distributes it among the people. Friends, we are foreshadowing Holy Communion. So, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P, the Messiah, the Christ, who has come into the world. When Jesus saw this huge crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, he had compassion on them. He saw that they were hungry and that they needed to eat. Jesus cares about our day-to-day -day earthly struggles. But how are they going to get bread to feed all these people, literally probably 10, 15,000 or more? How would his disciples cater a meal at the last minute on a holiday for so many people? Well, there was in the crowd a little boy. And that little boy had packed a lunch. Amazing that among 10 or 15,000 people, only one little boy thought to pack a lunch, but he did. What could God do with such simple, small, humble gifts? Miracles, that's what God could do. And still today, taking what we think we have as worthless gifts, still today, taking what we think of as our own humble, inadequate, not nearly enough type of giftedness, God can still work miracles. We think that the spiritual gifts we have are like nothing compared to the needs I got, I got a couple loaves, and I got a couple fish sticks here. I got a, I got a couple Gordon's breaded fish patties here. How, how are we going to cater a meal for thousands of people? Well, the God who created wheat and fish and the vine, and hi, Matt Benton, the God who created Matt Benton, the God who created you can and will still work miracles through your seemingly humble personal gifts if you'll give them to him and let him. No time. Miracle number five, John chapter six, walking on the water. Now, I have walked on water, but it's been frozen. Jesus walks on it when it's still liquid. John chapter six, starting in verse 16. When evening came, 
his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Wait a minute, we heard that name before too. God must be doing something. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come down to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. I would be too. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus' disciples, many of him fishermen, went out on the lake that evening, and a storm blew up upon them, and they were terrified. But there through the storm, they looked and they saw something that they had never seen before and certainly didn't expect to see. There through the storm, they saw Jesus walking on that waving water through the storm. And at first, they were more afraid. But then Jesus speaks those famous words that we know appear time and again in the Bible. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. And still today, during the storms of our lives, Maybe when we feel all alone out to sea, when we feel tossed and turned by the waves, when we feel blown to and fro by the wind, even there in the midst of the storm, Jesus still meets us then and shows us that he is still master over all creation. But not only does Jesus walk on water, there's another bit of miracle in this story that we often miss. As soon as Jesus gets on the boat, the disciples like teleport immediately to the other side of the sea, to the land where they were going. Friends, no matter how rough the journey may seem to us, with Jesus, we're closer to our destination than we thought. No time! Two more to go! Miracle number six in John chapter nine, healing the man born blind. I love this one. I, I love them all, but I really love this one. John chapter nine, starting in verse one, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. When you believe this stuff, it really gets you. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Rabbi? Teacher? Whose fault is this? It's got to be somebody's fault, right? We live in a world where it's blame you and blame you and blame you and that's your fault. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I wonder if you're as fascinated as I am with this question the disciples ask in verse 2. Here is a man who had been blind from birth. And the disciples want to know who sinned to cause this kind of punishment to be afflicted on him. Was it him or was it his parents? But here Jesus teaches us not to think of disease or disability or special needs as something that we have been cursed with because of our sin. Rather, we live in a fallen world where even the innocent suffer if anyone can rightly be called innocent. So Jesus says clearly this man's condition is not the fault of his sin or his parents' sin or anybody else's sin directly. This man wasn't cursed with suffering, but on the contrary, Jesus says this man was so blessed so that the will and the glory and the miracles of God could be displayed in his life. And again, this man's testimony would be recorded for millennia even to us today. So how about we go ahead and not call this a birth defect, but call God's creation beautiful. Because God had a plan for this man's life from the very beginning. And yes, here at this time, Jesus does use one of those fancy ceremonies involving spit and mud, Now, we have already learned that Jesus just has to will it be done, and it is done. Just bid it be so, and it is so. So why the weird ceremony? Why the little song and dance routine that we haven't seen so far? Different scholars have different answers. Maybe it's because God can even use the parts of life that we think dirty The parts of life that we think gross, like spit. Maybe it's because God just simply works in ways that we don't understand. That God can work miracles even through that stuff. And again, God loves this young man. And after he puts the mud and saliva on his eyes, he sends him to another pool to wash The name of that pool is Siloam, which of course means sent. And even this person with disabilities, now healed, but healed or not, even persons with disabilities have a powerful testimony to share of the power of God in their life who made them perfect just the way they are. No time. Miracle number seven. John chapter 11 raising Lazarus from the dead. Preacher sure did read a lot of the Bible in church today. Yep. John chapter 11, starting in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, 
she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Our Lord knows what it is to grieve. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Does that foreshadow anything? A tomb with a stone beside it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. They rolled the stone away from the tomb. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe. That's the point of these miracles, that, that we may believe. That they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The last miracle during the earthly ministry of Jesus, before the resurrection of Jesus himself, shows and clearly foreshadows the promise and power of Jesus defeating death in the grave. This seventh miracle demonstrates our Lord's promise of eternal life for all who believe in him. But it doesn't come easy for Jesus. I mean, the power comes easy, but emotionally, the Scripture says, spiritually, he was troubled. Everybody's favorite Scripture memory verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, shows us Jesus was troubled. Jesus wept. Do you understand that you serve a Savior who knows what it's like to grieve? Do you understand that you serve a Lord who knows what it's like to weep? Jesus wept, and in so doing, demonstrates in a powerful way that we do not serve a God who is distant and far from and separate from and other than his people. We don't serve a God who is detached and disconnected from us, but rather we serve a God who knows firsthand what it's like for us to hurt, and he hurts with us. We serve a God who knows what it's like to grieve, and he grieves with us. We serve a God who knows what it's like to cry, and he cries with us. The very same God who promises to wipe away every tear 
from our eyes. These are the miracles of Jesus in the book of John. Concluding and crescendoing and climaxing, of course, with what you might call an eighth miracle, the resurrection of Jesus himself. Fulfilling his promise that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the more we keep digging, the more insight and revelation and promise for us still today we will find in these miracles. And of course, Jesus did many more works than these. And if every one of them were to be written, I suppose, not even the whole world would have enough room for the books we could write. Would you pray with me? God of miracles. God who has not stopped working 2,000-ish years later. God who still loves us. God who still is moved with compassion for us. God who still weeps when we weep and mourns when we mourn. God who loves us so much that you came to earth to live and die for us. We thank you for your self-revelation to us in your word. We thank you that through these miracles you revealed who Christ was, the Messiah, the Savior, to those people and to us. We thank you that Jesus is more than just a good teacher or, a, or another one of the prophets. We thank you that Jesus is more than just a great earthly example, but we thank you through his miracles that he revealed to us, you revealed to us that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, today, just as those who were convinced by the testimony that created Scripture, I pray today, God, there would be somebody who is moved by Scripture's miraculous testimony and who's ready to say, Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner. And I've messed up more times than I can count. And I can't save myself by my own good works. But you who cured the sick, caused the blind to see, you who walked on water, you who fed thousands, you who even raised the dead, you still love me even though I am imperfect and sinful. You still love me even though by my choices I have turned my back on you. And you still came and died not for the perfect people. They don't need a Savior. You came and died for sinners like me. And so today, God, I open my heart and I make you the Lord and Savior and Master of my life. And I, I give you my heart and I give you my life and I, I accept you and I, I make you my God and my King, my Savior. But God, remind me that the Christian faith doesn't stop there. It merely begins there. So move me from this place out into your world to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, to be the body of Christ, which is his church, to speak the words of Christ, to touch with the compassion of Christ, to weep with the tears of Christ, and so today continue to spread your miraculous love and power in this world. And God, I pray continuing to see miracles in my own life as well. All this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And our worship leader, Marty.